Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 68. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host... And today we are talking about indigenous fire and climate justice. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute Peoples Treaty Lands, the Dineta and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. And today we have Denise Martinez on the show. Denise is a PhD candidate in ecology at UC Davis. She's a descendant of the Tutunaku people and mixed race Mexican. Her research focuses on governance, decision-making, and collaboration in partnerships between tribes and their collaborators. So welcome to the show, Denise. Hi, it's so good to be here. Yeah, just recording from Potwin Homelands. It's great to be here. Awesome. Okay, well, I am so excited to have you on the show. You were recommended by a previous guest and you know, we always talk about this show focusing on cultural resources and land management and archaeology and ethnography and all these things. But the land management part often gets a little neglected since it is uh, located on the, the Archaeology Podcast Network. So very excited to have you on the show because as as regular listeners will know, you know, natural resources are cultural resources. So very excited to talk with you more about some of this. And on that note, let's dive right in with what got you interested in this kind of work. Yeah. So I've been doing this work since uh, 2014, maybe when I was an undergrad At the time, I was really interested in science. I grew up in a place that was really impacted by fire. We had, you know, smoke every every summer. We had evacuations almost every summer. I always tell the story that I used to work at a feed store and there became a point where I could not see, you know, across the plant nursery. (laughs) Because of the smoke was just so bad and there was always ash in my car. And I think I just grew up with these things as normal. And so when I got into college and started learning more about, you know, the fire problems in California um, through an ecology lens, I got really interested. And I think, you know, I was interested in the topic, but I didn't really get to dive in until I found an opportunity to work as a field technician for the Kaduk tribe. And it was one summer working with a PhD student, Colleen Rozier. And we basically went out into the forest and evaluated how cultural plants were doing, cultural sites, what kinds of prescriptions or, you know, management plans would we make for these different areas And it was just eye-opening, I think, for me. And it was also the very first time that I was in a culturally affirming 
and, you know, science experience. <laughs> Most of my science experiences were kind of devoid of that cultural aspect and, you know, my classes, my other research experiences. And so this is the first time where I felt really affirmed in my identity and even, you know, encouraged to explore it more. I'm a descendant of Tutunaku people. I'm a first, you know, generation immigrant to the United States. And so for me, it was just this feeling of I'm so far away from home. I, you know, don't really have access to this kind of knowledge and experience from my own community. And so to just be welcomed into this Kaduk project and to be able to work on it and spend time with elders and spend time on the land was just so affirming and so empowering. And so then I was kind of hooked and I, you know, I came back in one way or another throughout the years. I started working with other tribes once I got into my graduate program, which was a little bit down the line. But once I got there, I really wanted to work with tribes throughout the state. Because one thing I noticed was that in each of these were sort of land management um, collaborations with tribes or tribes are trying to bring their cultural practices back to the land because of the way that land tenure works in California and because of capacity and resources, tribes are often collaborating with agencies, with other types of funders to make the work happen. And I just got really interested in when is that really positive and when can that be negative or yeah, I guess a negative experience is how I would say that. And mm. so that's what I decided to focus my dissertation on. But it's been kind of a journey. There's a lot in there. But ultimately, it, it was just always been a part of my life. Fire has always been a part of my life. And I'm just learning to understand it in new ways through these different phases of my career. Yeah. So, okay. I want to take a step back for a second, back to that experience, the Karuk. Can you talk a little bit more about how that experience was different in the way that they approached management from your other internships? Uh, Cause you mentioned that it was really, you know, culture affirming and, you know, just a, a really positive experience for you. But can you talk about a little bit more about like some of the ways maybe that they integrated culture into their management compared to other the other internships that you mentioned that didn't? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the the first piece of it is that it was completely led by the Kaduk tribe. And mm-hmm. so in terms of who was leading it, it was the Kaduk tribe. And so really it was the whole project was centered around Kaduk foods, around Kaduk basketry materials, around Kaduk ecological knowledge. Everything was led through that perspective. And so our team was actually, it was this at the time um, PhD candidate, Colleen Rozier, she's since graduated and is Dr. Rozier, but it was her project supporting this larger project through the Kudik tribe. And so it was her and it was me as her undergrad assistant. And then it was uh, Kathy McCovey, who is a Kudik elder and basket weaver. 
And it was um, Ben Saxon, who um, does a lot of traditional hunting and wildlife work. And it was Ron Reed, who is a traditional dip net fisherman. And so it was just this experience of being out on the land with those folks. And sometimes we would also bring youth here and there when, when they would be available. And so being out there with them and getting to learn kind of the landscape through those eyes, instead of seeing, you know, just a forest, this is, you know, a mixed conifer forest, I would all of a sudden see, oh, this is such and such is gathering area. This is, you know, a good place to fish for salmon. You know, there's XYZ traditional foods here. And all of a sudden the forest became a homeland. Truly, I I was able to see how the forest was home and not necessarily just like this blank slate of beautiful trees and forest. It was all of a sudden very clear to me, this is where people get their food. This is where they come and weave. This is, you know, where we would go get fish. And so for me, it was just this as, you know, as an immigrant and I also have DACA, which is a deferred action for childhood arrivers, uh, arrivals, which means that I'm undocumented and I have like a permission from the U.S. to be here, but also not to leave unless they give me explicit permission. And so I haven't been home at, you know, in at that time, I hadn't been home in close to 20 years And so for me to be in this place where all of a sudden I'm being welcomed and shown all of the wonderful ways that this forest is home, it made me feel more grounded and affirmed in who I am and also understand my relation to this place, which is someone else's home. And so I think it was just such a cultural education of how to be a good guest how to be a good relative. And, you know, ultimately also I learned a lot about, you know, the stories of different plants. And so I actually learned the names of plants, (laughs) which in my other internships where I, you know, worked in a very kind of Western science perspective, I had really struggled to learn plants because basically, you know, professors would say this is, you know, scientific name plant. And I would try my best to memorize it, but never really connect with the plant. And then all of a sudden in this, you know, in this work with the Kaduk tribe, I knew all of these plants because I knew their stories, because I had tasted them maybe, because I had felt them in my hands and like known what to do with them, you know, like maybe known how to process them for basketry, et cetera. And I think that that, experience was just monumental for me. It was really important and it really changed my perspective on how to relate to place. Okay. So you have this really formative experience that really, you know, transforms the way that you're, you're viewing the, the, the field that you're studying. And obviously I imagine you go back to school after this experience what was the the reaction to the way that you were describing this experience to other people in the field? Is this more of a common understanding now? What was the reaction? I think it was mixed. I mean, I think within ecology, it was mixed. <laughs> so 
I had some professors who were really interested and excited that I was doing this kind of work and they were very supportive and, you know, helped me, you know, get into grad school and help me think about this as a potential project that I could continue working on. I did have one professor that was really disappointed because, like I said, I really love science. I was doing really well in his genetics course and he wanted me to do something else. (laughs) He told Mm -hmm. me, you can't, you know, talk to people who think they talk to trees and expect to call that science. And I just, I mean, I think I remember being really hurt and just enraged by that comment. Yeah. But I think it was a, this experience also of, knowing that this is something that's worth it for me. It wasn't just, you know, a passing interest. It was something that I was really deeply passionate about enough that I was willing to stand up to this professor who was, you know, frankly, like really influential, but I was able to say, no, that's not right. And, you know, continue on this path. But you know, I like to focus on the folks who really supported me. I, uh, my current grad advisor really helped me kind of contextualize these experiences and kind of create presentations on them and talk to people about them and grow my network of community too. I mean, she, Dr. Beth Rose Middleton is my advisor. She, you know, has been doing this work for longer and she's just been so supportive of me and in helping me connect to the to the right folks to grow my work and to learn more from all of these different communities. I started out with the Kedig tribe and then I've, you know, started working with folks more local to Davis, um, like uh, Pat Moon-Mantoon, uh Elder uh, Diane Almanderis, or the Chairman Ron Good from the North Fork Mono tribe. They've been really important mentors as well as, you know, Dunlap Mono folks like Carly Tex and Julie Tex and just helping me learn, honestly. And I think I having that network of folks and community of folks that think my work is interesting and have supported me in learning more, I think it's my everything on this PhD journey. Yeah. So, okay, we're at our first (laughs) stopping point, but I'm excited to keep going on this journey with you when we get back from the break. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. We're back. And we were talking about your PhD journey 
and how this internship with the Karuk really ex- shaped the the approach that you wanted to take with your PhD. But now I'm curious, you know, why fire? Like it shaped the your methods and things like that, it sounds like, but why this particular topic? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of reasons. Like I mentioned, I think growing up and seeing fire be just a constant presence where I grew up in a little town called Etna, California. It's a rural place uh, with forest all around. And I think that really piqued my curiosity about why does this happen every summer? How can, you know, how can we make that better? And then going and um, kind of interning for the Karu tribe and just seeing that almost every cultural resource needs fire and that fire is such an integral part of most California landscapes. Yeah. And just how do you kind of think about those two things is true at the same time as, you know, this absolutely essential ecosystem process and this catastrophic social issue. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that was really interesting. And it was also, I think, interesting to me as a part of the story of the land. So fire suppression in California was has been there since the beginning of the state's history. It was, I guess, a key strategy in settler colonialism. So if you're thinking about how you know, settlers came and stayed in the state. One of the first things they noted was, you know, Native people are burning the landscape. They didn't understand it. They um, were opposed to it because it could potentially burn timber. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, again, all of this history was just, and I'm not a historian, but (laughs) all of this history was just such a part of the land. And then knowing all of this, thinking about why this isn't a bigger part of how we make management decisions in California was just mind boggling to me. Like, why aren't agencies working with tribes throughout the state in this, you know, equal power structures? Why aren't they co-managing more? Why are, you know, these elders and these cultural practitioners that know more about this land than anyone I've ever met. (laughs) Why are they not the folks who are at the table making these types of decisions? And that's, you know, what really got me going. (laughs) Because then I realized, you know, part of that is this long history of colonialism, of racism. I got really interested in it. And thinking of today's context, which is, you you know, more complex, because I think that this state and agencies are interested in working with tribes, but how they do that and how you collaborate matters as much as wanting to, you know, like it matters that you think about power, that you think about how, about equity, about all of these things are so important. And I think the process of it is critical to make sure it happens well. So not to to make you give your whole dissertation here on air, but can you explain a little bit more about, you know, if, if, if there's an agency, like a state agency in California and they want to do this work and they want to do it with tribes, 
Can you talk a little bit more about some of those key points that you just mentioned and how those agencies can can better do that? Yeah, I think that there's a lot that could happen. One of the things that kind of surprised me or that is surprising me as I go through analyzing my dissertation is that relationship building is really important, right? And I think that that's something that people would be like, well, duh. (laughs) But I sometimes I wonder if like both groups are thinking about it in the same way. So Mm -hmm. I think I've heard from tribal members, you know, like it's really important to us that, you know, people be able to talk through the painful history of California, of their agency, and that we be able to have, you know, these discussions about that. It's really important to build consent. And so if we're in a process where we can consent to something and it happens, and if we don't consent, it doesn't. So it's not that we're just here to click some worked with tribes box. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So like no tokenization and all of this is a little bit more complex, I think, than just like, yeah, it's great to to reach out to tribes and to, you know, know their names. It's, you know, it's a lot harder to show up and then have this really difficult conversation about genocide or about cultural suppression, about the ways that your agency continues to have policies that really disadvantage tribes. That's, I think, harder, a harder ask than just like relationship building might imply, (laughs) you know? And I think that, I think that that's what's important though. I think that we can't get to a place where tribes are trusting agencies or, you know, agencies share power with tribes if, People don't have good relationships, continued relationships. And it's hard to do that if there's all of this horrific shared history that's not being addressed. And that's kind of just this elephant in the room that we're not acknowledging. You know, I think that there's some collaborations where that does happen, where, you know, the the agency partners or other, you know, collaborators really come with this knowledge about what has happened in California and are willing to address it, to talk about it and to listen. And I think that that builds trust and that builds relationships, but you know, that doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that was one thing that I, you know, that I've been mulling over, but there's, you know, there's so much in those interviews about, you know, data sovereignty and about how common it is for data to be taken, how common it is for, you know, sensitive sites to be published publicly and, you know, the sites being damaged as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's just a lot of ways that we're not doing that relationship right. And I think the first step is just really acknowledging that and being willing and able to address it. Even if, you know, (laughs) I imagine, you know, like a Cal Fire employee listening to this and being like, oh, shoot, like now it's all on me. But I I mean, I think 
it's helpful to at least be able to hear it and to listen and and have that conversation. Even, you know, if you just got to your job at Cal Fire, you represent this huge agency or, you know, the U.S. Forest Service. It's another huge agency. And it's hard to kind of absorb the fact that you're now representative for this agency that may have caused harm. But I think being able to to do that and to have those conversations puts you in a better position to build relationships. So I feel like I should take a step back here a second because I asked you all of this information and then I didn't have you like give the background on what your PhD is focused on and or the, the dissertation work that you're doing is focused on and how you're doing it. So could you uh, take us back to the beginning now that now that I had you give away the ending (laughs) and uh, talk more (laughs) about, you know, these interviews that you're doing and and your approach to your dissertation work? So basically, my dissertation is a set of interviews with cultural fire practitioners throughout the state about the ways that they're navigating cultural fire collaborations. And so there's a set of interviews that I'm doing with cultural fire practitioners, and there's a set of interviews that I'm doing with agency folks and kind of boundary spanning collaborators that will help me understand kind of what are the challenges on their end? Because there's a lot of people who really want to collaborate with tribes, but might be running into barriers within their own organization. That's the basic logistics of my dissertation is these interviews. And I think for the cultural fire practitioner side of my interviews, these are folks that I've built community with throughout my dissertation by doing, you know, different projects with them. So there's folks that I've, you know, been to Burns with. There's folks that I kind of got to meet through different aspects of my PhD journey doing community-based work. And so these interviews are kind of the academic publishing (laughs) side of my work as a PhD student. And then I have this other, you know, whole other part of my work that's really about helping coordinate cultural fire work throughout the state, but really focused in two sites where we actually, you know, help lead workshops on cultural burning. So all of that to say is that I think all of that really informs my dissertation because while I was kind of developing my questions, my research questions, I was working with all of those different folks on different projects. And so I would, you know, say, hey, like, what do you think about you know, these questions, what are the questions that you have about these different aspects of collaboration? And I got to learn a lot from that. And that's really helped make my questions relevant. And (laughs) it's helped my questions make sense across the state. Because that's the other thing I was really worried about is that doing a dissertation that focuses on works with tribes throughout the state can be really challenging because the state of California is actually really diverse. There's a lot of different indigenous communities. And so, (laughs) yes, and very big. And so if, you know, if I had been the only one with some input into my questions, I would have 
probably not been as relevant in, say, like Southern California, where I've done way less community based work. So all of that to say is that it's been really helpful to have this kind of, I guess, like community based side to my Ph.D. going on in tandem with this very like academic research side. I wasn't able to merge them as much as I wanted to when I first started my PhD. When I first started my PhD, I wanted to do a community-based project from the ground up. And it turns out that that's really, really hard. (laughs) I think the reason that it's hard is that there's a lot of milestones within a PhD program that don't necessarily fit community timelines. So community was having all of these different needs like oh there's this policy coming out or you know there's you know this information that would be really helpful or it would just be you know sometimes it'd be like oh it'd just be helpful if you helped us you know with this project and I'm over here like well here's my dissertation isn't (laughs) my I have you know a qualifying exam in two years and then after that I have to do the whole research project and then I have to publish it. And so we're talking about maybe like five or six years before there's results. <laughs> right. And of course, like that doesn't necessarily fit community timelines. And so I ended up having all of these kind of projects that really became, you know, half of my PhD process. And I think it ended up working out because I built all of these different relationships with people and was able to bring them into the PhD process and say, hey, you know, like all of that projects that we've been doing. Remember how I told you I was working on my PhD? Like, would you be willing to be interviewed for this? And they would, you know, they would know me and it would be okay because we have been working together for for months. I mean, I think ultimately those two sides came together, but it was very messy (laughs) for a little bit of just like, how do I make this community-based work really merge with my dissertation? All right. Yeah. So I'm really excited to keep going with this conversation, but we are at our next break point. So we will be right back in a minute. Okay. So we were we were talking about all of these really great things and I realized probably take a couple steps back again and talk about what is cultural burning and if you could give a little bit of of background on cultural burning and maybe also, because you mentioned the diversity of cultural burning, maybe also what different forms of it look like or how it, it, what kinds of ways it differs maybe between different parts of the state, different tribes, just a general overview. Yeah, sure. I forget too, so no worries. Yeah, so cultural burning is, you know, I think mostly used to describe indigenous cultural practices of land stewardship using fire. And California is not unique. There are a lot of places in the world where indigenous people use fire to kind of shape their landscape, to meet their needs, to help ecosystem health. So that's kind of a super general, broad uh, definition. I think when you kind of try to get more specific, it's really helpful to think about a specific community, simply because as you can imagine, 
cultural practices really vary between communities and also between, you know, ecosystem types. So the way that a community might burn a grassland would look really different from the way that they would burn, you know, a forest. So all of that to say is that there's a lot of diversity in the way that burning happens. I think a key difference in the way between, say, like an agency burning and a tribal community burning, at least in my experience with the people that I work with, is that agencies tend to have this really strong goal of fuels management. So basically managing the parts of the forest that would become fuel in a wildfire. Basically, you could think about the forest like a big campfire and... (laughs) You could think about, you know, when you start the fire, you add kindling and that would look like, you know, in a forest, it would look like leaves. It would look like, you know, small dead material on the ground. And then you would add your kindling, which looks like maybe in the forest, it looks like bushes and small trees. And then once all of that is burning, it is very easy to burn logs or bigger pieces of wood, which in my analogy would be the big trees. And so the forest, we obviously don't want to burn the big trees. So we clear away those fuels beneath them. And that is, you know, one of the main goals of the ways that agencies do prescribed burn. I think it's a great goal, but when you're burning with indigenous communities, it's that and more. So there is, you know, a focus on reducing fuels, but really it's about increasing the quality and abundance of cultural plant resources. So plants that are needed for basket weaving, for foods. A lot of basket weaving plants are actually of no use unless they're burned. So when they're burned, they grow back really straight and pliable, which is great for basket weaving. And also, you know, there's also a big focus on community building and on coming together to be in the land, to work with fire, and to take care of the plants that take care of our community through food, basket weaving, etc., So there's a big focus on being together, working together, being on the land. And the fire itself has a lot of great benefits for the broader ecosystem. So even though, you know, the deer and elk aren't necessarily around when we're burning, we burn for them as well. So when you burn plants, they, you know, they'll burn. And then when they come back, they're brand new, they'll will have new shoots. And turns out deer and elk really love it. It's soft. It's yummy. And so, you know, creating food for, for those animals. Um, there's been some research coming out of the Klamath about how smoke helps shade the river at critical times for salmon. So as salmon are coming up the river, if the river is low or it's warm, it's really helpful to have at least some shade to cool the water so that it you know, so that doesn't harm the fish. So that was, you know, when you think about smoke also being a resource that um, we're stewarding, smoke also helps get rid of pests. So one of the key food staples in um, California native cuisine throughout the state actually is acorn. 
and acorn gets weevils in it, this little bug, and um, smoke helps kind of reduce that, that bug and reduce how many acorns it takes. And so there's a lot of these, you know, ecological benefits. And really, you know, there's just this focus on how do we maintain a good relationship with the land, with each other, with the other non-human relatives around us. And, you know, for us, that's, you know, doing our job to make sure that we're putting fire on the land when and where it needs it. And so that's, you know, that's part of caretaking. That's caretaking of our relatives, of ourselves, of our communities, of our ecosystems. And that focus is a little broader than maybe like fields, fuel, fuel management, you know, and and I think agencies are now also having a focus on ecological benefits, but it's still not as broad or holistic as what I've seen tribes name as their objectives and burning. So yeah, that was a lot of information. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that is perfect. That is exactly what I was thinking. So one thing as you're as you're talking about all of this that's coming to my mind is that obviously we're in an era of climate change and mm-hmm. how are the indigenous people that you're working with adapting these practices in the face of of climate change obviously also you know they've had to adapt them in the face of fire suppression like you already mentioned so how does that play into cultural burning? I have heard, you know, elders talk about changes in the environment and kind of worries that they might have about things changing. And, and just I, I think the, the focus being really on being extremely observant and vigilant about how things are changing and when there's also a big focus on remembering that Indigenous people have been through changes in the climate, obviously not at this scale, but there's kind of a wisdom or an understanding of, okay, we've done this before. We've been through enormous environmental change through settler colonialism of, you know, settlers coming and really changing the environment. And so we know what strategies to take or to start with. And go from there. There's a lot of focus on continuing to be open and learning. There's, you know, some tribes have big research departments, I guess you would call them, or or they have this big research collaborations, either with their own scientists or in collaborations with academia to understand how things are changing and how to adapt and change their management practices. And I actually, I mean, I think that that's one of the biggest things that we can learn from tribes in this space. I think certainly, you know, the traditional ecological knowledge and the indigenous science is critical, but I don't think tribes get enough kudos for the ways that they're adapting their management in response to science and community observations, cultural practitioner knowledge, because that is something that's actually really difficult to do is to have a decision-making scheme that is actually adapting and learning with the environment as it's changing in this really rapid way. And that really, you know, I'm a 
governance and decision-making nerd. And that is just so impressive. (laughs) And so for me, you know, when I, when I see tribes doing that, you know, I think like, how can we learn from your processes, from your leadership to make this happen for other types of governments? And so, yeah, I mean, it's just really interesting. And I think when we think about climate, one of the biggest issues is this issue of collective action. How do we collectively make decisions and decide on a thing that we're going to do or try and do something about it? And I think for me, seeing these communities who are by no means, you know, made up of people that all think the same, but they're coming together, they're learning, they're bringing, you know, in any outside expertise that they need they're building their own expertise um, in their own practices and, you know, reclaiming a lot of the practices of their, that haven't been practiced in a long time and doing all of this in order to, you know, be able to adapt and change anything that needs to be changed, continue what needs to be continued and act about on climate change. It's, it's very much, there's no, sense of inaction that I get from tribes when it comes to fire and climate or, you know, honestly, just climate. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's the sense of like, there's so much to do and like everyone can pitch in. <laughs> That's kind of the, the, the response that I get when, when I talk to tribes about climate change. Yeah. Okay. So obviously oh. there's all these, these big topics that you're talking about and facing these big challenges like climate change. So what are you wanting to do in the future? Like when you look at your post-dissertation life, which I imagine (laughs) seems very far off while you're working on it, (laughs) what ideas or topics or types of projects are you excited about uh, looking, looking to the future? Ooh, the the future question. (laughs) I know just to be mean, sorry. (laughs) No, you're okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm really excited to continue this more of the community-based work that I've been doing. I think I'm certainly open to to continuing doing research. I really want to be in a place where more and more we're kind of redefining this role of the academy to not just be kind of informing but to be a part of this movement for climate justice. And so for me, that looks like continuing to work with the elders and community that I have been working with. There's some, you know, projects that will go on (laughs) after I finish my dissertation. And so I want to be continue to be engaged in that. I think something I've been really interested in lately is just really thinking about state processes for cultural burning. So the the state of California has some great laws that just came through the legislature on cultural burning and and supporting folks who want to do more prescribed burning. And it's really exciting to me, but I think one thing I want to continue to work on is just the application of those policies And so for me, it's been really interesting kind of getting to jump into that mind space because in academia, it's very easy to think these like 
grand, um, big ideas. And I think it's important to have folks who do that. But for me, it's really challenging and exciting to get to think about it within the constraints of agencies. So kind of how do we take this big idea of climate justice and indigenous cultural fire and how do we make sure that we have integrity, we have good collaboration, equitable collaboration, and we have indigenous leadership at the center when, you know, we're working with state resources and, you know, they have their own government. And, you know, I, I think just the, the constraints are really frustrating, but it's also, I think, a really good way to use my expertise to think about it in that way. And um, so I've gotten to think a little bit with the science advisory panel of what was formerly the forest management task force. I think now they're like the wildfire and forest resilience task force, but it's basically this task force created by the governor of California and my advisor was on it. So I got to work on this report on how to prioritize the money that California is investing on in forest health and how to prioritize which projects get to be funded under that. And so I got to kind of create a framework for them around prioritize that funding so that it goes to projects that are building community-based climate resilience that are working with tribes in you know, a respectful, in a respectful way in giving them their rightful place as sovereign nations. And, you know, how do we evaluate projects for those kinds of things? A little less quantitative, like there's <laughs> at the state, there's this big focus, I think, or maybe this is just my experience, but this big focus on putting things on maps, which I love me a good map, but <laughs> <laughs> it was like, how do you put, you know, collaboration you know, equitable collaboration on a map. And so I, you know, I built this qualitative framework for them. And I think next I'm, I'm really excited to just get to share that with policymakers and continue to make people aware of it. Cause it was this report that came out from this task force. And I feel like if I don't, you know, show it to folks, I don't know who reads those things. So <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, it was fun to create something like that, that was more applied, that was, you know, within constraints, but still in some ways incorporated those, you know, big revolutionary ideas that I've learned from community, from cultural fire practitioners, and that I get to think about a lot because I'm, you know, an academic and I can spend time on those things. So I think that's what I'm excited to do next is that kind of applied work. Okay. I want to ask you, especially because again, this is on the archaeology podcast network and you're an ecologist. And so I want to ask you like, what if, if you had one thing that you could shout on the rooftops, you know, your soapbox thing, and and maybe that's to other ecologists, but, or maybe that's to, you know, a more archaeology focused audience, more cultural anthropology focused, more, cultural resource management, covering all them bases, anthropology, I guess, focused audience. So what would you want people to know? And yeah, what, what are you shouting from your set box? <laughs> you know, I think 
for my soapbox, my statement would be you cannot incorporate indigenous knowledge into your work without working with indigenous leaders. And I think for me, that looks like, I think the, the thought of, you know, incorporating indigenous knowledge sounds, I mean, and I think people mean it in very good ways, but I think for me, when you think about indigenous knowledge being embedded in all of these different and very important processes, relationships, you know, cultural institutions, pedagogies, or, you know, the way that people teach, it just becomes more and more obvious that you can't just incorporate. You do really need indigenous leaders to be at the table, to be working with you, to be leading that effort. And I think that that's something that is really important as land managers and agencies are learning more about the value of, you know, indigenous cultural fire practices. It's really important that it's recognized, but also to remember that there is no point where an agency can do cultural fire without it being indigenous led. And, you know, there's no incorporating, there's only working with indigenous leaders. And so You know, again, I, you know, it's my soapbox, so I'll say that, but I I do understand that people mean it in very inclusive ways, but I just, you know, it's my soapbox. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. It's, it's so interesting on the one hand where there's like little bits of differences, but for the most part, how the two fields seem to be talking about very similar things. So I'm very excited that we were we were able to have you on and i hope everybody learned a lot just like i did no thank you i had so much fun all right well thank you again and we'll see everybody next time Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster, Rachel Roden, Laura Johnson, Max Lander, and... This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.